You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. We'd like to thank our great sponsors, Harry's and ZipRecruiter. Their continued support of the SpyCast family is invaluable. You'll hear more about them later, but first, let's meet our guests. So we're joined today by Stephen Talty, who's an author who started his career at the Miami Herald as a news clerk and police reporter, and then became a freelance writer in Dublin and New York. He's written for the New York Times Magazine, GQ, Playboy, The Irish Times, The Chicago Review, and many other publications. He's the author of six previous nonfiction books, Mulatto America, about the mixing of black and white culture throughout American history, Empire of Blue Water, the story of the great pirate captain Henry Morgan, the illustrious dead about Napoleon's invasion of Russia and the typhus epidemic that doomed it, Escape from the Land of Snows, an account of the Dalai Lama's escape from Tibet in 1959, Agent Garbo, some of you might have read that, the story of the greatest double agent of World War II, Juan Pujol, and The Secret Agent, another one you may have read, In Search of America's Greatest World War II Spy. He's also the co-author of the New York Times bestselling account, A Captain's Duty, which he co-wrote with Captain Richard Phillips, the hero of the Maersk, Alabama hijacking. As many of you know, the book would later be made into the award-winning movie Captain Phillips. He is the author of a new book, The Black Hand, the epic war between a brilliant detective and the deadliest secret society in American history. Welcome, Stephen. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. It's great to be here. So at first glance, uh, this book appears to be a nonfiction crime thriller, which we usually don't talk about here on SpyCast. It's got a famous detective working against the organization that would really kind of become, turn into the Italian mafia we all know and love. But when we take a deeper look, it's got a lot more going on. And that's why I wanted to talk to you. Well, there's really two reasons. One is my name, Vincent, is not an accident. I'm named after my grandfather, Vincent Trappolino. And his, he and his father, Gregorio Trappolino, came over to New York around the time period that this book is set in. So I immediately uh, saw a, a lot of interesting kind of correlation there. But more importantly for the listeners, because they care very little about my great-grandfather, there's a lot of really contemporary relevance in this. This is really a book about terrorism and immigration, fear of the other. So what brought you to this topic? Uh, I had never heard about it before. Uh, and can you talk a little bit about the kind of contemporary underpinnings of this book? Sure. Um, I actually have a biographical reference as well. My dad and mom were immigrants from, I'm from Ireland, I'm sorry. And um, 
my dad was a construction worker in Buffalo. He belonged to a union that was controlled by the mob. And uh, one day he st- stood up in a, uh, a union meeting and asked about the pension because bad things were happening with the pension. And the next day, a limo, believe it or not, pulled up to the construction site. The window went down, and a guy called my dad over and said, we don't want you to ever speak at another union meeting. So that was always in the back of my head um, because the thing about the Black Hand is they preyed not on people who were interested in prostitution or gambling. They preyed on hardworking people just trying to get a foothold in this country. Um, So there was a personal motivation there. The second thing is, as you said, the current relevance. Um, When I looked at the history of the Black Hand and the history of Italian-Americans, Um, I saw patterns that were just playing out today. Um, There's always this idea that new immigrants aren't really truly loyal to the country. Um, And that happened in sort of with my ethnicity, with John F. Kennedy in 1960, had to give a speech saying he wasn't going to be taking phone calls from the Vatican and carrying out the Pope's policy in America. For the Italians, it was crime. Um, Even with the black hand, Many Americans believed that a crime boss in Naples or in Sicily could send a telegram and there would be uh, a crime in New York or there would be an uprising or there would be uh, sort of a a crime wave that would take place in America. For Muslims, it's their faith. So, you know, these patterns recur and there's always this deep mistrust and fear that these people don't believe in the republic the same way that we do. And it's been disproven again and again. Mm -hmm. And I just felt that here was a moment from history that connects with with crime and a great detective and um, truly sort of thrilling detective work, but also had that modern right. resonance. Well, let's talk a little bit about the Black Hand, because it looks like it was even founded back in the mid-19th century. It, it really comes across to me as more of a terrorist organization than versus a, a crime syndicate. And I think you know, not to preach or, or proselytize here, but if they were Arab Americans, if they were Muslim in faith, no one would be calling them a crime syndicate. They would be called a terrorist organization. And, and there's a real fear among a lot of people that it was essentially kind of an insurgency taking over governments. I mean, you write in the book that it took over an entire town, I guess, in Pennsylvania or somewhere. You know, this is more than just your classic mafioso that kind of keep to themselves and maybe buy off a politician here and there. They were trying to integrate themselves completely into American life. Right. They were like an unofficial government. They taxed people. They um, had, even in New York, bank tellers would be members of the Black Hand and they would give information to their bosses about which merchants were depositing large sums and those merchants would become victims of the Black Hand. Um, So it wasn't just, you know, pinpoint here and there. They were tied into the economy. when you're in New York, the subway you're riding in or the water you're drinking were help, were, are there because of Italian-American immigrants. They dug the subway tunnels. They built the aqueducts. And those people were being taxed by the black hand. So it was national. It was deeply rooted. And you're right. They were a terrorist organization in their methods. Um, there's one instance out west where they cut off the arms of... Uh, an Italian immigrant and let him walk around. And he was sort of a walking advertisement for the black hand. Um, there are similar similarities to ISIS. They, they wanted to use terror in order to horrify people. And they wanted those um, acts to be public mm-hmm. so that the next letter 
um, the next threat would be obeyed. So I think they were really the first criminal organization to use terrorist methods and to have such a national reach. Well, and as you insinuated, they, they didn't just stay in New York. This is an organization that spread all across the United States. And, and not at first, but later on, it would create a tremendous fear of immigrants mm-hmm. around the country. And it's interesting to me that uh, at the beginning, when it was just Italians who were being targeted by the black hand, no one really seemed to care one way or another. But eventually, once it spread to the non-Italian communities, it became a national issue. Right. There's that line from The Godfather, um, they're animals anyway, so let them lose their souls. That was very much the attitude of Americans. That was the attitude of the Secret Service, which was the national police agency before the FBI. That was certainly the the attitude of the NYPD, which was a largely Irish force, which was sworn to protect wasps and Americans and Irish Americans, but the Italians were left to their own devices. So they were help building this country they were paying taxes um, but they were being preyed upon by these killers and these extortionists and no one really cared as you said it's really it's not until they started threatening judges and justices of the peace um, and factory owners um, Mr. Weston of Smith and Weston was threatened by the black hand and many people believe it drove him to his grave the day after he got those letters the secret service was at his door volunteering to to help him so if you were telling you were out of luck, if you were telling you were really half guilty already, so right. um, you were you were implicated by your own culture, what people believed about your culture. So um, there was no resource, there was no one to return to until this guy Joseph Petrosino kind of arrived on the scene. Yeah, let's talk about that. Was going to be my next question anyway. I mean, this is someone who's been referred to as the Italian Sherlock Holmes, and he does take a lot of standard detective. Uh, routes to hunt these guys down, but in many ways, it's, there's a bit of a carryover to what a lot of our listeners understand as real spy trade craft, where you know he builds a network of spies throughout New York City. Uh, he uses psychological operations consistently to, in, you know, to to cow people into kind of turning themselves into him. And you can talk a little bit. He had a very famous patron that kind of gave him the power that he may not have gotten. As especially as an Italian under normal circumstances. Right. His patron was Teddy Roosevelt, who was a smart politician and along with Tammany Hall realized that all these Italians pouring into New York were eventually going to vote. So they needed to do something to be able to police those neighborhoods. So he found Petrosino, um, who became the first detective sergeant of Italian heritage in the country. And Petrosino flourished. Like you said, he used... Um, unconventional methods to really go after the black hand. He was a master of disguise. His friends would pass him on the street. He might be dressed as a Hasidic Jew or a board of health member or a uh, dollar a day laborer. He was so good at it that his own you know, family and friends wouldn't recognize him. And like you said, he built a network among sort of the silent majority of little Italy, getting people who were being victimized and who were terrified to talk um, to be his informers and tell him to tell him who who were the sort of masterminds behind the black hand crimes. Um, but he also, he had a sixth grade education, but he had a near photographic memory. He could, there's one famous instance, he was climbing a stairwell in a New York City tenement, and he just walked past an open doorway, glanced at this guy sitting at a kitchen table, stopped on the stairs, turned around and walked in and said, you're wanted for murder in Chicago. And that was from a flyer he had seen four years before. So a brilliant guy, but unlike Sherlock Holmes, um, 
physically very formidable. Um, his body was covered in scars from street fights. So he uh, he was sort of the genius, but also the enforcer. Um, and this is a time when having a sixth grade education had nothing to do with your intelligence. It's just the opportunity. Right. At this point, you know, this is probably somebody who, if he had grown up in a different you know, a different society, a different ethnicity would have gone on to a very good college because of how intelligent he really was. Yeah, I, I do believe that's true. He loved things like the violin. He loved opera, was kind of an, uh, a minor expert in opera, um, loved talking to these. A lot of the prosecutors he worked with went to Harvard and, you know, Columbia, and he loved talking with them and trying to drink in uh, that education that he never got a chance to have. Well, um, they, they seem to love talking to him, too. I mean, you write several times in the book about how he's like a loved house guest because he's just so intellectual about so many different things. Yeah, great raconteur, great storyteller. I think he was also a novelty. Italian-Americans at the time were thought to be these kind of medieval savages, to be honest. Um, they didn't have a lot of Enrico Caruso's, like the tenor, who were part of high culture. So to have a a dinner guest who was an Italian-American um, who could tell these great crime stories but who also had this intellectual edge to him um, was kind of a, you know, a treat. And I think for a lot of Americans, Joseph Petrosino was the first Italian they respected. And they also, after a later chapter in the book, we'll talk about it later, but I think they came to love him mm-hmm. for what um, the sacrifices he made for this country. Let me pause for a quick minute to tell you more about Harry's. We just finished off one holiday where we were forced to struggle over what to get the important people in our lives. Now comes another. Father's Day is just around the corner. And dads are impossible to shop for. It's always difficult to find something that feels special but he'll actually use, which means we wait until the last minute to find a gift. Fortunately, our friends at over at Harry's have a special offer that you're going to love and dad will too. Get $5 off one of their shave sets, including a limited edition Father's Day set at harrys.com spycast. Look, Everyone tells you they have the best products, and you get inundated with ads across all mediums saying this product or that product is the best. You and your dad are probably a lot like me. We don't fall for silly ads promising things that just aren't true. That's why I want to tell you more about how Harry's manufactures their razors, and this is what I find absolutely coolest thing about them. They bought a German factory, which means that they own the entire process, from grinding high-grade steel to sending razors to your door. That means they can continually innovate to make your shave even better. Their team in Germany has been grinding high-grade steel into some of the world's sharpest blades since 1920. Today, more than 400 German engineers, designers, craftsmen, and production workers build and operate sophisticated custom equipment that produces millions of precision blades every year. What this means for you and your dad, their blades will get even better. Your shave will get even better. They'll listen to your feedback of what makes a great shave and use their expertise to develop products that deliver you that experience. Your dad will be proud you found something of such high quality. Shave sets start at just $15, and that's not to mention $5 off when you go to harrys.com slash spycast. You get a razor handle, moisturizing shave gel, and three of Harry's five-blade precision-engineered razors. Harry's limited edition Father's Day shave set comes with a storm gray razor handle, chrome razor stand, foaming shave gel, three replacement blades, and a travel cover. Plus, it comes in a sleek, giftable box with the option to add custom engraving and personalized card for free. So go to harrys.com slash spycast right now to redeem a special offer for fans of this show. Harry's will give you $5 off one of their shave sets. This is for a limited time only, so act now. That's harrys.com slash spycast to get $5 off and to help support the show. 
So a lot of our listeners spent time in the last 15 years in Iraq or Afghanistan or other places around the world. And and as I was reading this, New York City at the turn of the century, especially in the Italian communities, kind of really stood out as something very similar to that. You know, at at one point, the black hand is really stronger than the NYPD. And and people refused to help the police because they, they thought that these other group, in the case, a criminal organization or an insurgent group, uh, was more powerful than the police and bombings galore. I mean, on, on a day-to-day basis, and and Petrosino's response to this was interesting, and, and it really was kind of somewhat you know similar to the convention countering violent extremism pro- programs today. You see that it's not just police work that's going to solve these problems. You need to have teachers and ambassadors and social workers to give hope and opportunities for the population. And you're never going to solve this problem, right? Um, he knew that he was an Italian immigrant himself. He came over at the age of 13. He knew that in Italy, um, a policeman, a judge, even the king was regarded as an enemy. Um, the people, especially of southern Italy, had been victimized for so many centuries that anyone in authority was regarded with malice and mistrust. So he said, um, you know, you're not going to solve this strictly by police action. Um, and what was happening in lower Manhattan, I think is unbelievable to Americans today. It was, you know, comparable to Beirut, as you said. Um, You'd walk down the street, there would be guys patrolling with shotguns in front of their houses. Their kids would be barred inside bedrooms, unable to go to school. Storefronts would be blown out left and right. Um, The the Black Hand could do anything they wanted, essentially. Uh, The NYPD, when they weren't apathetic, were sort of powerless. So Petrosino says we need almost a social movement. We need Italians to believe in America, and we need Americans to believe in Italians um, for this to work. So in a certain way, he was kind of leading uh, something of a civil rights movement. He wanted Americans to see Italians as potential good citizens, and he knew the black hands stood in the way. As long as they were there, Italians were going to be seen as conspirators and murderers. Well, that's really difficult at this point because, I mean— a lot of people may remember from eighth grade history or something. This is a time period where there's a massive influx of Italian immigration. And a lot of Americans are very anti-immigration. Several papers actually went on record at the time recommending just ending immigration from Italy altogether. And there's kind of a back and forth, whether there's rally to the cause, paper owned by William Randolph Hearst. Kind of made the argument that you see around today. It's just a couple bad apples. It's not everybody. Um, but even people looked at the quote-unquote Italian soul and decided all of it was just because they were Italian, the ethnicity of Italian, they were to blame. Mm-hmm. And that really even stands out because there was a recent article about the disease of the Arab mind. And I'm talking about it's, it's, it's not bad apples, it's just people who are Muslim and Arab just kind of in, inherently or innately are just bad. And it can seem that same philosophy about Italians during this time period. Yeah, absolutely. Um... I think it was the New York Post who recommended that anyone who sent a, sent a black hand letter should be branded on the forehead so that they could walk around, you know, living a kind of death before their actual death. Um, but yeah, it, it was believed that it was so intrinsic to Italian culture to sort of kowtow to these criminals. Um, this is where the idea of omerta comes from, the silence that even Petrosino recognized, but he recognized it not as a cultural trait, but as a sort of sociological phenomenon because these neighborhoods weren't being policed and if they went to the cops they their son or daughter might be kidnapped or they might be murdered it was much more a practical failure on the part of 
civic government than it was some kind of medieval trait. Um, and when I looked at the statistics for criminality in those years, Italians were actually among the lowest as far as per capita crime. Um, but it was sort of the brilliance, the psychological theatricality of these crimes that caught the imagination of the people. I mean, there were Irish gangs down in the Five Points, things like that, but they didn't have sort of this operatic vision of crime and this national vision of how it could work. And that's really what terrified Americans. Eventually to the point where they allowed Petrosino to open what was called the Italian Squad. And so they, I, I read this, I'm like, this is the Untouchables, right? Which is, you know, from two decades later, essentially a group of people that he could trust to hunt these guys down. And that had to be difficult, right? You, you had to, the assumption was that even Italian cops, the vast majority of them were compromised somewhat by the black hand. So in this case, he had to figure out how do I effectively bring together people I can absolutely guarantee are not moles from the black hand. Right. This, this to me, was one of the fascinating things I found out about Italian crime. We sort of have this um, cinematic idea that it's the Elliot Nesses of the world who went up against um, the mob and, you know, the, the FBI and these sort of wasps and fedoras. But at the beginning of the century, it was really Italians who were the only ones who would face off against these criminals. Um, so he got these five guys. They were all Italian, um, Sicilian speakers, actually. And um, at first he didn't trust them. He would send them telegrams telling them to be at a certain place. Wouldn't tell them what the case was about because he had been so abused and sort of so reviled within the NYPD for years and years that it took a while to build that trust. Um, but these guys, they slept on their desks. They were committed to the cause. To, to them, it was um, kind of a, uh, you know, an ethnic movement that they had to defeat this gang for their compatriots to be real citizens. Um, and in the first year, they cut black hand crime by 50%. I mean, the results were undeniable. And what an important thing that happened is that Petrosino became a, a darling of the New York press and then a darling of really New Yorkers in general because he was the only one who was going after these criminals. Um, but I think it's important to remember that um, the solution really to the black hand came not from without mm -hmm. Italian culture came from within Italian culture. Let me. One thing I thought was really interesting throughout this book was that there's a lot of what we call tradecraft. I mean, it was chock full of things that a lot of people recognize as being done by intelligence aid. You already talked about disguise, mm -hmm. about how Petrosino used disguise very effectively. But even in this case, they create a front company or a, a real estate firm that was their headquarters. They were they were worried even about advertising where their actual headquarters was. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, the Black Hand would go after anybody. They went after um, top mobsters in New York and Chicago, so nothing was sacred to them. And Petrosino developed these sort of new um, strategies. He would, um, he would go after handwriting, for instance. When a note came in, he had every Black Hand suspect in the country go to their local pre precinct unwillingly, sign the register, and give an, an example of their handwriting. And by through that way, he he caught several black hand masterminds. Um, but it was sort of you know cat and mouse. The the black right. hand went to typewriters after that in certain instances, mm -hmm. or they would use guys straight off the boat as their bagmen so that they couldn't be sort of tied to the crime. Um, well, one one of my favorite things that you talked about is the fact that when they started tracking bagmen, 
they rented mailboxes. Right. And when they started marking currency, like you see in the movies, they started making people pay them in gold and silver coins. And the form letters, even cutting out the little, like, you know, uh, ransom letters that you see in the movies so that people couldn't analyze their handwriting. Right. It was an escalating sort of war of wits. It was like KGB versus v- versus CIA. And... Um the thing about Petrosino is that he didn't have that um, infrastructure behind him. Even the prosecutors didn't want black hand cases because a lot of times the, the witnesses wouldn't show up. They would take a, a ship back to Italy. Um, and in certain cases, he had to resort to something we frown upon now, but is was basically police violence. Um, he would beat the hell out of guys. He would knock their teeth out. If he thought that they were legitimately black hand suspects and were going to escape prosecution um i think the difference between petrosino and the average cop of that day was that an an average cop would just club an italian who was anywhere near a crime scene um petrosino was using it strategically to to stop a crime wave it was a full-fledged psychological psychological operations mission just kind of like send a message absolutely yeah he believed i'm sorry he believed he had to be tougher and he had to show the community that he was tougher than these guys that were out there killing people yeah, I mean, PSYOPs pops up all over the place. I mean, the idea of, you talked about already, of, of kind of using kind of over-the-top assassinations to cow victims, the arms cut off, or being stabbed in certain ways, or things like that. Petrosino also saw big arrests as a force multiplier. Uh, the story of Enrico Afano is, is great, where he just goes in there and just slaps the tarnation out of him and does it in front of everybody just to kind of get this idea across of, you can't win here. Right. This was a, a famous leader of um, the Italian mob in, uh, in southern Italy. was wanted for a murder in Italy, and like many uh, Italian criminals, used the, the U.S. as an escape valve. He jumped on a steamship under a false identity and came over to New York. And he was probably the, the most wanted man in the world at that time. And it's, it's really kind of a hilarious story because it shows um, Petrosino's kind of operatic sense of of justice, he invited a reporter over for lunch. Went to this um, tavern, and the reporter had no idea why he was there. But he was there to witness the the arrest. Petrosino got up. Um, the crime boss was being, you know, he was being faded by uh, a bunch of his uh, underlings, and uh, thought he was completely safe in Little Italy. Petrosino went up, went over, slapped him across the face, knocked him into the wall. His uh, his buddies couldn't believe that that they that he was doing this, but they knew Petrosino, and if you touch Petrosino, there was going to be war. Yeah. So he just dragged him by his heels, arrested him, um, brought him out of the place, and the reporter was aghast. He couldn't believe that Petrosino hadn't used backup. He could have, you know, had the Italian squad with him, but Petrosino was using the same psyops, like you said, as the Black Hand were. He wanted to show that these guys were cowards. He wanted to show that they were beatable. And so he had to do that publicly in a public place where many Italians would tell their brothers and tell their barbers about what happened. Right. And that was sort of his newswire to get the word out. Well, I mean, you write several times in the book where he doesn't need to pull a gun. He, he walks up with somebody heavily armed and just says, my name is Petrosino. And they just give up. They're like, okay, you got me. It's absolutely like, true. Yeah. Which is extraordinary. I mean, you think of today where, you know, a unit goes in with helmets and shields and automatic weapons to go take down a bad guy. He just walked in the front door. These guys all had guns and shotguns. He just said, my name is Petrosino. And they're like, we give up. Right. 
and using psychological operations at an extent that you just don't see at this time. Yeah, I think Petrosino also saw himself as uh, kind of a stand-in for maybe Italian manhood. He wanted to show that um, you know courage could be rewarded, and he wanted he wanted other Italians to do what he was doing. Uh, he needed that. Um, so I think it had an effect on the criminals. There's one story in the book I came across where criminals who landed from Italy in Ellis Island were brought into the city, and they almost always asked to see Petrosino because they'd heard of him back in Italy. So their friends would bring, bring him to 300 Mulberry Street, which is where Petrosino worked. It was police headquarters, and just wait for him to appear. And they wanted to see this guy because they wanted to avoid him during their criminal careers. But he was a legend on both sides of the game, really. You know, yeah. They hated him. They despised this guy. They considered him a turncoat. But to have risen so quickly in the way that he did was still impressive for any you know, Italian right. immigrant. What's interesting is the black hand itself, it wasn't just the NYPD and Petrosino, used a lot of what we consider modern tradecraft. They had moles inside different industries that were pretending that they were workers and they were able to gather information. They, they did serious intelligence collection about who to actually go after. They weren't just randomly choosing people. They actually compiled dossiers on prominent people. They figured out who should be their future targets. Yeah, they actually had a series of grocery stores and wholesale shops where um, they would track every purchase and to see who was sort of uh, coming up in the world. They would find out about family inheritances. If your uncle died in Italy and you got a big sum, the Black Hand would know about it almost as soon as you did. Um, so any kind of clause in a will um, or anything like that, it was like um, omniscient, really, because they had so many informers, they had so many people involved in the operation. And this is not only New York, this is Chicago, mm -hmm. this is Los Angeles, this is uh, the coal towns of Pennsylvania. Um, one thing we should talk about, though, is that people always referred this to this as sort of a medieval secret society, but it could not have existed without sort of um, modern infrastructure. Mm -hmm. They needed the newspapers, they needed the wire services to transmit these stories. Um, and the reason Italians were here were, was industrial revolution they were building this country you know from the ground up um so it it's not something that had the same effect i mean there were sort of isolated incidents in italy but it really bloomed in america because it needed these sort of um modern uh technologies to, to flourish well you needed the ability to spread the kind of the psychological operation right i mean it, you needed people around the country to hear what was happening in different places right i mean that that wouldn't i mean as you write in the book you know, something that happens across the country would have an impact in New York because people would hear about it. So that kind of uh, you would not have a nationwide movement without that. And that's a really interesting segue, because as Petrosino gained power, as the Italian squad gained power, the Black Hand continued to grow and grow because no one outside of the Italians were considering it an issue. And it really, as it looks in the book, it almost grew into almost a warlike confrontation between these cops who are willing to kind of go the distance and the black hand, daily bombings, as we talked about. Interesting anecdote or part in the book is that Petrosino created the first ever bomb squad, uh, which is kind of a cool little tidbit of, of information there. We'll hear more about the black hand in one minute, but let me take a moment to tell you about ZipRecruiter. As I've told you before, ZipRecruiter is a company that was founded by a group of guys who worked in the tech industry and startups and realized the absolute worst thing about running an organization was the process of hiring people. 
If you live in Washington, you might notice a new building going up in the L'Enfant Plaza area. It's pretty hard to miss at this point. The building of the new museum is chugging away, but soon comes the hard part. We eventually need to hire a lot more people as we get closer to the opening. When we want to hire a new person, we want to get the very best people, and who doesn't? But the process seems never-ending, and it can take a huge amount of time, time we really don't have, as we try and run our current operation while planning the content for the new museum. The people at ZipRecruiter have the solution. So are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to 100-plus job sites with just one click. Then their powerful technology efficiently matches the right people to your job better than anyone else. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them. In fact, over 80% of jobs posted on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in just 24 hours. There's no juggling emails or calls to your office. Simply screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. So find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. Right now, SpyCast listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com first. That's ZipRecruiter.com first. One more time to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com first. But I want to I direct you to talk about when Petrosino finally says, I need federal help, calls mm-hmm. for the Secret Service. Because that's an interesting element to uh, his background, but at the same time to the fact that federal government and white America was not ready to even step in even at this point. Right. Um, the Secret Service knew Joseph Petrosino. They'd used him in the past when um, the King of Italy was assassinated um, the Italian government requested that the investigation um, sort of carry over into America because the assassin had come from New Jersey, had been living there. Um, and the Secret Service realized they had no Italian agents on the force. So they called up Petrosino. Um, I think Teddy Roosevelt played a part in that. And he went undercover for three months in Patterson and revealed this sort of circle of anarchists who had a list of world leaders that they wanted to die because they were the agents of world capitalism. And William McKinley was on that list. So Petrosino went to the White House, told McKinley and Roosevelt face-to-face about this looming danger. McKinley, who was beloved and believed himself to be beloved, um, sort of brushed him off. And Petrosino went back to New York uh, without any action being taken. And even Roosevelt, who was vice president at the time, kind of blows him off. Yeah, he you does. Know, even though they, you know, he knows how good Petrosino actually is, he just right. could never believe that some anarchists would go after the president. Right. Uh, and then, of course, in Buffalo, my hometown, um, not too long afterwards, William McKinley is shot and killed by an, by an anarchist. Um, so Petrosino saw this national organization sort of uh, unfolding. It was sort of a franchise system where people set up new shops in Denver or wherever, using the brand of terror to sort of milk money out of, you know, good, honest Americans. And he realized he wasn't going to be, be able to do it alone. So he turned back to the Secret Service and issued an appeal to the, through the New York Times saying, the only solution is really federal help, because this is a federal problem. And a couple of days later, a spokesman for the Secret Service um, called up the New York Times and said, we have an answer for Petrosino. And the answer was, if Italian immigrants want our help, they're going to have to hire us right. at private detective rates, and then we'll do what we can. 
Because it's um, still just Italians being really killed at this point. I mean, for we're the not, most part, yeah. yeah. For the most, I mean, in, and the, the Secret Service doesn't react by investigating the Black Hand. A lot of states actually react. That their solution is just by banning Italians. Yeah. Um, or, or enacting crazy strict laws about things like that. But it was, it was Virginia and one other state just tried to completely ban any Italian immigrants from coming into their states. Yeah, the Black Hand definitely affected demographics in this country. They terrified people in the South so much. The people in the South needed good farmers, just like um, Italians were. Um, but they, the legislatures would issue these resolutions saying... Please don't send us any Southern Italians because we fear the Black Hand, we fear the Mafia. And, um, I, you know, that's one reason you don't see that many Italian names on, like, the, the roles of Ole Miss or something like that. It just sort of froze that section of the country um, and turned them against Italian-Americans. There's not a little Italy in Atlanta, I guess, for that. <laughs> I don't believe there is, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and it's, so, you know, it, it had this sort of... Um, coast-to-coast effect that we just don't think about until we go back and look at the archives. Well, and it wasn't until, a, I guess it was in Delaware where a blonde-haired, blue-eyed little kid becomes a victim right. of the Black Hand that the U.S. Secret Service and the federal government begins to really take notice. Yeah, I mean, there were like society matrons and um, the heir to the Coca-Cola fortune were threatened, and they had Secret Service protection, but in the case in Delaware, Teddy Roosevelt actually wrote the father a letter saying, I'm going to commit every resource of the uh, of the federal government. And Petrosino must have been losing his mind because right. he couldn't get, you know, he couldn't get one detective with one revolver to come out to uh, a case where, where kids were kidnapped and being held. And this is one white kid compared to the thousands of Italians that right. had been, yeah. And Italians were even abandoning this country and going home. They, all you needed to find was a, an imprint of a black hand and coal dust on your door. That was one way that the society of the black hand used to intimidate you. People left the country. They gave up their American dream and went home because they were so uh, horrified to be a victim of this, um, this organization. But when it happened to a white doctor, um, and of course, you know, Italians were considered sort of secondhand whites or not even fully white at the time and so they uh they uh just ignored them and but when it happened to this doctor the federal government and everything in its power the u.s postal service was involved the secret service was involved roosevelt was watching over the case so it just shows you the sort of discrepancy that that was going on there's an extraordinarily funny story uh in here that a lot of people in dc will appreciate when the uh members of the house of representatives began getting letters that Sounded awfully a lot like they were now targets of the black hand. Can you talk through that? I, I, I put the book down laughing. I mean, it's because knowing knowing that world, uh, it was it was quite extraordinary. Yes, they, they started getting postcards that said, you have six days signed the black hand. You have four days signed the black hand. And the town was thrown into an uproar. People believed that um, senators and congressmen were going to be you know whacked left and right on the Capitol steps. Um so it was really the first time the federal government took notice of this thing and people started talking about legislation. But on the day that, you know, the promised vengeance was coming, another postcard arrived in the, in the mailboxes of different congressmen and it said, um, black hands can be washed by our soap. It was, a, it was an <laughs> advertising, advertising campaign. Yeah. Um, so, 
you know, the Black Hand, if you weren't part of, if you weren't being victimized by it, it was kind of like a sideshow. It was like a circus uh, attraction. And, and many people wrote hilarious articles about the Black Hand. But for Italians especially, it was very real. One thing I found, and this is nearing kind of the end of the book, the, the kind of culmination of this story that's it's fascinating, was that Petrosino finally gets the permission to really take this international, to to go fight the Black Hand and its roots, and that means in Italy. And, and this is really where it goes from, in my opinion, a crime, nonfiction crime thriller to an actual book about intelligence operations mm-hmm. because he gets sent over to Italy, which is doing essentially a four-deployed intelligence mission. He did, and it was hostile territory. A lot of his compatriots told him, you don't know what Italy's like. You, you haven't been there since you were 13, and you've forgotten. They, they told him the cops are controlled by the mob, and he didn't really, I don't think, fully believed him. He was Joseph Petrosino. Uh, he was immortal, I think, in, in, in his mind in certain ways. And he gets over there. He's struck by the beauty of... Uh, of Rome, he's he's I think thrilled by the culture that he's protecting. He's finally seeing it up close, but then he starts to do his investigations and he finds these um, deep connections between the police and um, and and the mafia. And a friend finds him like a few weeks into his investigations and sees him on the street. Friend from New York, and it's a def- a different Petrosino that we see. He's someone who's in- uncertain. He's looking over his shoulder. He's he's trying to recognize different guys he sees on the street, and he doesn't have that sort of um, that backup of the Italian squad and all the good Italians in New York mm-hmm. who lo- who love and honor him. So he was terrified, um, and what he realized was that it, it just went too deep for him to sort of attack as one man. But he made progress. He got the names of all these criminals who had been sent over to the U.S. Um, under false pretenses and who could be expelled from the country. And that would be a huge blow to the Black Hand. So he's ready to sort of go back to New York with this long list of criminals and um, really start taking down the Black Hand. Well, the mission he's sent to do, I mean, it makes a ton of sense when you think. I mean, the idea is look at the records of people who had immigrated to the United States, find out if they had been criminals back in Italy, because then you could kick them out. It was also to look at, and I thought this was the most forward-thinking part of this, was look at a lot of people in Italian jails currently to make sure that if they ever got out and tried to immigrate to the United States, we would be prepared with who we knew were bad guys. And then finally, he knew he'd have to leave eventually to try to establish his own spiring mm-hmm. inside Italy to continue this work over time. Yeah, he was leaving an intelligence, an intelligence network behind. And um, he found Italian authorities who were um, honest and willing to work with him because the Black Hand was a slur on the Italian name globally. They they hated the guys just as much as Petrosino did. So he had really established enough contacts to stop the flow of Italian criminals to New York, which would not have only stopped the Black Hand, but the names you see on those lists are some names that we know today. Some right. of the five families, um, the, the forefathers of those gangs, of those empires... Um, had criminal records and they could have been stopped from coming to America. So this was something that would have gone on to the 20th and 21st centuries if Petrosino had been allowed to do what he wanted to do. Right. I mean, that's the big, the fallback here is this could have been, as you say in the book, the most ambitious intelligence operation that the NYPD ever ran before 9-11. I mean, there's a, mm-hmm. there's a lot trying to go on here, but it never really gets to where it's supposed to be. Right. Um, 
Petrosino's past had followed him. Um, it was a conspiracy that started in New York among two criminals who were leaders of the Black Hand movement and who had never dared touch Petrosino in New York. But now he was in Italy. And um, we know this because an informer later told the Secret Service that he heard the plot, that Petrosino was in Italy and he needed to be killed. So Petrosino was gathering information. He was in Palermo in Sicily in sort of the belly of the beast. And um, he goes out one night into a dark square in the middle of town to meet an informer. And a bunch of shots rang out, and uh, he was found dead on the pavement. Um, what's interesting about this is it has a bit of the air of sort of the JFK, JFK assassination for Italians. It was that big in, in Italy at the time. But unlike in, in JFK, um, where everyone had a different motive, you know, the, the mob or the communists or whoever... It was really sort of a collective crime. The Italian underworld wanted Petrosino dead. Right. There's a lot of people with motive here that try to, to kill him. Absolutely. Um, and the list of suspects went on. But as you can probably predict, no one was ever convicted of the crime. And everyone who was uh, arrested went scot-free. So it was, um, it was sort of Sicilian action at that time. The, the mafia was uh, hugely influential. And the Black Hand uh, back in New York was sort of instigating the crime but honestly if he hadn't been killed at that point there were other people who wanted him dead that he passed in the street every day well what was extraordinarily sad about this is that Petrosino's life work was to try to make Italians more accepted by Americans but it was in his death especially as a martyr for the cause caused more prejudice and repression against Italians here in America yeah even the Italian squad was furious at his death and they went out and they they would just go to an Italian restaurant or a tavern. They would line people up and they would harass them. They wanted revenge for what had happened to Petrosino. But you're right. Um, the idea that even this sort of um, Italian uh, hero could be killed in Sicily just went back to this idea that the Italians were incorrigible, that they were going to kill anything good that, that came out of their culture. So, yeah, there was a real backlash. Um, the only sort of bright spot that was was Petrosino himself. Uh, when he came back to New York, his coffin came back to New York. Um, the city really shut down. A quarter of a million people showed up the, for the funeral. Um, and this is in a time when Rudolph Valentino died, I think, 10 years later. He got less than half that amount. Mm. So this is a guy who was beloved. Um, and they buried him with full ceremonies. And I think the NYPD, even those guys who had hated him, the Irish um, stalwarts who wanted the jobs for their kids... Uh, had come to respect what Petrosino did. So you may or may not be able to talk about this, but this sounds like a movie served up on a silver platter. Do, do you, do you, uh, are there any plans to, to do something with this in the future that you can talk about? Well, yeah, Par Paramount Pictures and um, Leonardo DiCaprio's company, Appian Way, have optioned the film. So, you know, it's in, it's in the works. Uh, hopefully maybe two or three years from now we'll have a Petrosino film. I don't know who would play Petrosino. Yeah, I can't, I, I, DiCaprio seems a little too good-looking for the kind of Petrosino kind of... Yeah, it's a tragedy yeah. that James Gandolfini is, is gone yeah. because he would be the guy. I mean, hands down, he has everything that, that Petrosino had. He, he even looks like Petrosino. But, um, you know, there's so many Godfather movies. There's so many Carlito ways out there that I think it's time for... Um, for... American culture to reflect the fact that the first crime fighters against the mob were Italians themselves, right. and, and this is the perfect story.
Again, we'd like to thank ZipRecruiter and Harry's for continuing to support the SpyCast family. Remember, you can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just by going to ZipRecruiter.com first and go to Harry's.com SpyCast right now to redeem a special offer for fans of the show. Harry's will give you $5 off one of their shave sets. And remember the great Father's Day special edition Harry's gift set. Well, Stephen Talty is the author of The Black Hand, the epic war between a brilliant detective and the deadliest secret society in American history. It's a fascinating book. Even if you don't want to make the kind of contemporary relevance to today, it's still a crazy interesting crime thriller that has lots and lots of intelligence undertones. So I, I highly recommend it. Stephen, thank you for taking the time to talk to us. It's great to be here. Thank you for joining us on SpyCast. Every Tuesday, we'll give you the most interesting conversations with some of the most intriguing people in the world of intelligence. If you'd like to send us a comment or suggestion, you can email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Or tweet us at intlspycast. That's I-N-T-L-S-P-Y-C-A-S-T. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit institution. To help support future educational programming, please visit spymuseum.org and click on our Donate Now link at the top of the page. Thank you, and we'll see you next week. Hey, listeners. We're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey and share your feedback now.